Kia ora and welcome to Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. Climate change. It's unquestionably the biggest issue facing the world. While other global problems play out on their own timescales, the COVID-19 pandemic, the war in Ukraine, rising inflation and looming recessions, climate change is ever-present. Ignoring it to deal with these other problems first will not make it go away. Climate change is the backdrop against which a whole host of other environmental problems are playing out, but it is not separate from them. It interacts with them and makes them worse. Just think about rising sea levels, melting ice caps, the extinction of wildlife and building pressures on indigenous biodiversities, more extreme weather, the acidification of the oceans. And while humans continue to pollute the atmosphere with greenhouse gases and contaminate the oceans with rubbish and plastics, politicians and governments continue to flounder when it comes to taking positive and significant action. Scientists at the university are among the thousands around the world who are studying climate change and hope to find solutions to help us adapt to and mitigate against its most disruptive effects. We're talking with two university climate change experts. Dave Lowe is an adjunct professor of atmospheric chemistry in the Antarctic Research Centre and author of the Occam award-winning book The Alarmist, 50 Years Measuring Climate Change and Hunter Douglas is at the other end of his scientific career. An environmental engineer, he is now studying for his PhD in geophysics in the New Zealand Climate Change Research Institute, focusing on analysing global climate model simulations. So, out of ten, how important do you see this issue? Well, it's the most important issue facing humankind. Of course, we're facing a lot of existential threats, not the least of them, things like poverty, uh, the war in Ukraine, pandemics. But climate change transcends everything. Um, To put it bluntly, basically, if we don't have a planet, if we have a damaged planet, we have nothing. It is definitely the most important existential threat that humans face. Yeah, I'd have to say that I agree. Uh, I mean, if you were uh, rating it out of 10, uh, a 10 would be one of the top 10% uh, worst problems that we're having to fix, and it's de- <laughs> it's uh, it's going to be in the top 1%. You know, this is 100 out of 100, not just a 10 out of 10. And as Dave said, it does touch on so many other things. It's uh, You can't really address climate change without addressing a number of other challenges, social and technological, and uh, it's sort of a meta problem, right? It's a problem that encapsulates a whole lot of others. So how did you get involved in researching climate change? Uh, Well, my background is in environmental engineering. I studied as an engineer and worked in engineering for a number of years, and uh, I found that the problems I was working on, while I thought they were important, things around like stormwater quality and uh, dealing with waste management, uh, everything came back to climate change. We were sort of tinkering around the edges on small local problems, and I wanted my work to have a uh, bit of a bigger impact. So uh, I've uh, made a bit of a sort of parallel shift in, or a, a diagonal shift in my career to really focus on climate science and uh, try to tackle that head on. And Dave, how, how, was your, how did you get into it? Well, for me, climate change um, 
I've been looking at this for well over 50 years, and in 1970 there was no climate change science. Uh, climate change as a concept didn't really exist. And serendipity thrust me into the position of being the first person in the Southern Hemisphere to make continuous atmospheric carbon dioxide measurements. And from a background in physics honours, I could see that we really had a problem in terms of radiative forcing heating the atmosphere. But there was no temperature signal back then. And making measurements of this minuscule amounts of gas in the atmosphere was a very, very weird thing to be doing. And uh, I came in for a, a lot of ridicule amongst friends and even other science uh, colleagues. Can, can you explain for us just what you mean by radiative forcing? Radiative forcing, so the atmosphere, um, if the Earth did not have an atmosphere, uh, essentially the surface temperature would be at least 30 degrees colder than it is now. The average temperature around the Earth's surface is around 15, plus 15 degrees Celsius. And the reason for that is uh, a bunch of gases, uh, more complicated than nitrogen and oxygen, which absorb infrared radiation. This, of course, includes water vapour, which is the most important greenhouse gas. And what they do is they warm up locally parts of the atmosphere and result in the surface of the planet, particularly the oceans, um, absorbing a lot, uh, a lot of heat. Now, when did you first, you mentioned about Bering Head, when would that have been? What year? Bering Head, so the very first atmospheric carbon dioxide measurements in New Zealand, um, I made them at a place called Macra, starting in 1970. And um, within a short space of time, I, I was working with an American team. The Americans kind of left. Two of them, one was a hunter, the other one was a fisherman, and they were living in New Zealand on American salaries and they just went off hunting and fishing, leaving me this project, just working on it all by myself. An enormous responsibility for a 23-year-old. Um, the site turned out to be hopeless. You couldn't make background atmospheric carbon dioxide measurements there. Not reliably. I got a feeling for the baseline levels, but that was all. And so I was placed with the task of trying to find a better site. And that turned out to be Bering Head. And I got that going in 1972. So um, almost exactly 50 years ago. Okay. Bering Head is, Bering Head is uh, to the sort of southeast of Wellington, isn't it? Um, you straight shot from there down to Antarctica. That's right. So um, back then, the idea was to try and get um, a feeling for what the whole of the southwestern Pacific was doing. There were measurements in the northern hemisphere that showed this horrible truth, uh, the increase in atmospheric carbon dioxide, but it was known that about 50% of the atmospheric carbon dioxide that was released by burning fossil fuels simply disappeared. Where was it going? The feeling was it was the southern oceans absorbing that, and so um, it was urgent that measurements be made in the mid-latitudes of the Southern Hemisphere. And so that's where I came in as, as this young physics honours graduate. 
and as Hunter's just said, Bering Head was an ideal site because during southerly winds there, wind trajectories from the Met Service showed that often air had passed over thousands of kilometres of empty ocean. So you really got a feeling from those measurements of what the whole of this part of the southern hemisphere was doing. Vital for figuring out what was happening with atmospheric carbon dioxide. So uh, Dave's probably covered some of this, but mm. you know the question about scientists, how they've established this consensus, um, how have they done that? Well, my reading of it is uh, that it's been a multi-pronged approach uh, of measurements, uh, which of course Dave's been heavily involved in, of uh, actually getting the um, on-the-ground evidence that these changes are taking place, coupled with the theory, uh, which goes back as far as the late 1800s, that uh, scientists have known that carbon dioxide in particular has this uh, warming effect on the atmosphere. So it was theorised back then that all the coal burning would uh, continue to heat the atmosphere. Uh, so the theory's been around for a long time. The measurements uh, started to back it up in the second half of the 20th century, and uh, it's just been a matter of refining our theoretical understanding of it, validating it with measurements, observations, and more recently, climate models. Uh, and we're at a point now where we can actually look back at predictions that those models made over the last few decades and, and see that, on the whole, they've held true. Uh, so from all sorts of uh, different aspects of, of uh, the physical science, we've been able to establish that truth, yeah. OK, and what sort of aspects are you looking at with your PhD? Uh, so in my studies, I'm looking at those climate models uh, that other researchers around the world have put together uh, using the results of their simulations looking forward into the future and understanding how the different pathways of emissions that we might take as a species uh, will change the outcome in the climate. So I'm looking forward into the future, analysing data from other uh, existing climate models. So are you looking at um, different percentages of different greenhouse gases and how like, you know, um, if there's so much more carbon dioxide or methane, that can affect things over a pe different periods of time? Or Yes, so I'm looking at, uh, as you say, the different balance of uh, greenhouse gases or forcing agents, as we might say, uh, how the different balance of those will have uh, differing effects on the climate. So you might have a different balance of long-lived forcings, like carbon dioxide, versus short-lived forcings, like methane. Uh, and also uh, aerosols, which have on in the net a cooling effect on the planet locally. Uh, so different balances of those will have uh, result in different outcomes uh, from a climate perspective. And but the main thing, and uh, at the bottom line, is the cumulative carbon dioxide emissions. The total carbon dioxide emissions over time are, are your main forcer, uh, main driver of climate change, and. Uh, one of the questions I'm looking at at the moment is uh, if we get into a net negative emissions scenario uh, and carbon dioxide levels start coming back down, uh, will the climate get back to where it was uh, or will some things have changed permanently? Um, mm -hmm. And that's a uh, question that yeah, we still need to explore. So carbon dioxide is the main issue. Like Methane is a shorter-lived... Yeah, we hear a lot about... Methane in New Zealand, but it's a shorter-lived... Um, yes, it's shorter-lived, um, but 
pound for pound, it has a greater warming effect. Uh, and it also matters where it's come from in the first place. If it's a, uh, if it's from fossil fuels, uh, natural gas, so-called, uh, then it will decay into carbon dioxide eventually uh-huh. and still have a net warming effect. Um, but if it's biogenic methane, uh, then it's taking an atom of carbon dioxide that was already there in the atmosphere. So there's a lot of different ways you can slice it and dice it to... Um, prove a point about whether it's better or worse for the atmosphere. Mm. Uh, that gets into, again, the physics of radiative forcing and, and different ways of accounting for it. Yeah, actually, an interesting point is that the, the greatest greenhouse gas of all, as it were, is actually water vapour. And uh, a lot of climate deniers and sceptics latch onto this. And it's pseudoscience, they're correct. But the point is that water vapour is very short-lived in the atmosphere and the heating effect is actually driven by carbon dioxide. So you've got small amounts of radiative forcing and carbon dioxide heating the atmosphere which allow more water vapour to exist in the atmosphere. The hotter the atmosphere is, the more water vapour it can hold. And so you kind of get this positive feedback. And to me, um, playing in a band it's very like your guitar, which produces a tiny little electric, electrical signal, which you put into an amplifier, which then can fill a whole stadium with noise. Right. So water vapour, yes, very important, but CO2 and methane and all those other longer-lived gases are driving this greenhouse effect. So we're right to be worried about methane. There seems to be a lot of coverage of methane in New Zealand. Um, absolutely we're right to be worried about it. It's um, Carbon dioxide has caused the greatest effect cumulatively, but methane, with its lifetime of around 10 or 11 years, it's short-lived, but its radiative warming potential, its so-called global warming potential, based on certain lifetimes, is around 100 times, or can be up to 100, a factor of 100. So the jury's still out, but very definitely increasing methane, and it's increasing at a far greater rate at the moment than it has since measurements began in the 1980s, is something to be very worried about. Mm. Uh, Hunter's been telling us about his uh, PhD. Would you, if you had you know, another shot at doing your studies? I mean, is there an area that you would look at that you didn't, or you haven't in the past? I mean, are you sort of... Um... Um, you know, it's, it's a funny thing. I guess hindsight is, um, yeah, it's twenty twenty, as they say. Um, very definitely we need the basic science and absolutely the kind of research that Hunter's doing and the measurements. But you know what? Um, I think what's most important now is the study of human behaviour. Um, really, um, some of the things we're doing are so absurd that if you, uh, you wrote a fiction, uh, a novel, you, you could scarcely believe the plot. Hunter and I were talking before about cars. Why would you develop a car driven by a bunch of explosions? Um, that from the second law of thermodynamics will only uh, be at best 20 to 25% efficient. 
when you could have built a much simpler vehicle based on batteries and electric motors. We have done some very, very silly things. Um, and we continue to do them. Somehow, uh, we all know that, yeah, we're, we're part of this planet. I mean, the Maori talk about Papua Tuanuku, that is the Earth Mother. You go out in the bush, you walk on a beach, you sense that you are part of something. We know that intuitively, that this Earth system is what gives us our lives, but we're going all out to destroy it, and we know that we are. And yet somehow, compulsively, we carry on with this whole economic structure which is based on profits and corporates, massive oil companies. We're just going on and on and on. So yeah, I'm, I've been raised a scientist, I guess, physics honours degree, but really I think now human behaviour, planning, how do we get out of this colossal psychological trap that we seem to be in? Mm. Yes, I think uh, we would benefit from the input of a, an historian here, uh, but there were electric motors available in the, uh, developed in the late 19th century around the time that, again, the internal combustion engine was being developed. and. I suspect that there was probably some profit motivation that went into that decision of uh, leading to the combustion engine being the uh, dominant one. When it's uh, a more complex engine, it's going to require more maintenance and upkeep and mechanics to be employed to do that. It's going to require uh, fuel to be provided at filling stations around the place. And uh, you might be able to imagine a more profitable infrastructure as opposed to a more efficient one a bizarre dichotomy there, isn't there? You, you have human beings, on the one hand, who seem to be absolute behaving like idiots. But on the other hand, the thing that makes me hopeful is the extraordinary ingenuity of human beings. And you can see that everywhere, from engineering, the sort of things that Hunter's been talking about, through into agriculture. There are phenomenal advances there now in um, what's called regenerative farming. Um, Copenhagen, for example, has what's called vertical farming within the city, um, which feeds a lot of people. Copenhagen will be net zero carbon in, by 2025. We can do this. So you see there is this strange balance going on. Profit motive driving us, hopefully not to extinction, but to a very, very dangerous place in terms of climate mm. on this planet. Mm. On the one hand, and the ingenuity and the extraordinary things that human beings can do on the other. I hope the latter overrides the former. I, I just want to, uh, yeah, again agree with what you said there, Dave, where uh, it's human behaviour which is driving so much of this. And I think if we had to think about uh, why wasn't action taken earlier, why is it still so hard to take action? It ultimately, in my mind, comes back down to foibles with human behaviour, uh, status quo bias, you know, wanting to stick with what's comfortable and familiar, greed, wanting to you know, make as much of a profit as you can, uh, short-term thinking, all these sort of downsides of uh, humanity, whereas uh, it's all these positive aspects of our species as well, of our ingenuity, as you say, and our empathy for one another that will be the solution. It's about emphasising those more positive aspects of our, of our thinking that I think will get us through this. So, 
so step away a little bit from the science, you know, your, your, your sort of science view of things. I mean, personally, how do you feel about the situation? You know, when if you're lying awake at night or, or you're looking at your grandkids or whatever, I mean, do you feel cross or angry or really anxious or...? Um, you know, I have a whole mix of emotions and um, they range from dread, feelings of dread, horror, um, anger, I'm really angry uh, that this has happened. And I guess I vacillate between being optimistic um, because of the uh, ingenuity of human beings and also young people, the actions of young people. Um, between that and despair. So yeah, it's a whole range of emotions, uh, but I can tell you I will never ever give up uh, doing what I'm doing. I'm involved um, constantly now in climate change outreach, talking to groups uh, all over the Wellington area on average about once a week. I will never give in to hopelessness and I will present um, that the situation as it is, that it's very, very dire and the urgency of reducing carbon emissions now, this decade in fact, um, versus uh, the options out there which have to do with sustainable agriculture, um, shifting over to different forms of transport, um, making do with less. Mm. And so how do you feel about things? I'm a pretty optimistic person by nature, uh, so uh, I, I don't uh, tend to dwell on the despair, uh, though I can see it's, uh, it's pretty tempting. Um, I think, yeah, despair and hopelessness aren't productive responses to it, uh, whereas I think, as you say, Dave, anger can be, uh, can be quite motivating, and I think uh, people are right to feel angry at uh, those in power over the years who haven't uh, acted on uh, the advice and haven't acted in our best interests. Uh, so for me personally, I uh, I feel aspects of that anger and I feel aspects of that uh, sa sadness for what might have been. Uh, but I try to use that as a as a motivator and uh, I try to focus on the hopeful aspects of it. And uh, I think Dave's. Um, justified in his position of, of, of not ever wanting to give up because uh, and we may touch on this a bit more but there's never a point where all is lost uh, you know if, every bit of action we take in the future is always going to be worthwhile and you agree with that absolutely the, the thing about human beings we're driven by hope and so um, as hunters just said we you can never give in to hopelessness you have to provide hope So there's still cause for optimism. We can still do some of these things, you know, with, uh, like you're saying about Copenhagen, and um, we can start trying to roll back maybe some of these atmospheric changes as well? Or? Yes, there's, uh, this is the, the beauty of it. It's not a binary problem. It's not climate change uh, is on or off. Uh, and it, it'll continue getting worse so long as we continue increasing the levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Uh, but once that starts coming back down, the climate will, will cool. Yes, there are some 
yes, there are some non-linearities in that process. There are tipping points that may be crossed where uh, species go extinct or glaciers melt that won't come back. Mm. Uh, there are larger scale ones like uh, the Amazon rainforest could turn into a savanna-like landscape. So there are big things at risk, uh, really valuable um, aspects of our globe, both intrinsically and to us as a species, which uh, we do stand to lose the longer we let this go on. But there's no, uh, the, but there's no uh, point at which um, we cross over and suddenly all humanity is doomed to burn up in a fireball. Um, there might be some parts of the of the planet that become practically unlivable. Uh, so we're going to have to deal with migration and uh, a lot of political challenges around that. But always, the uh, the sooner we start reducing emissions, the faster we take action, the greater benefit we're going to see. So how long might it take for those average temperatures to start plateauing or coming back the other way if we, if we do, you know, um, get to a net zero? The most optimistic projections, uh, if we take action immediately and drastically reduce our emissions, we, we could start seeing things turn around within um, probably 10 to 20 years. I think that's based on um, politically and economically quite infeasible uh, situations or, or scenarios. Uh, but I th in my mind, we, uh, it is entirely feasible for us to get our act together and uh, transition in a managed and uh, in a well-managed way uh, to get emissions down within the next, say, three decades to hopefully uh, maintain uh, temperature rise no more than two degrees. I think that is still uh, physically and economically and politically feasible if the motivation is there. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree with that. <clears throat> the trouble is there are so many what-ifs involved, aren't there? And um, who would have thought, uh, for example, the Ukraine war, um, the sanctions have pushed the prices of fossil fuels up, and naively you think, yeah, wonderful, um, that's going to make it far more competitive for renewable energy, electric cars, or other forms of transport, but no, um, people are saying that they can make huge profits. And so now you've got um, several oil companies, including Aramco in Saudi Arabia and ExxonMobil, um, proposing going for more exploration. And yet we already know that with the known uh, fines that are there, what's already been developed, if that was all burnt, um, we would be way over the two-degree two target. And it, and it was one and a half degrees, remember. It's still kind of what we talk about. That was the Paris Agreement. That was, was the Paris Accord or Paris Agreement yeah. in 2015. You've kind of covered this probably already, but, I mean, you know, the, especially for you, Dave, I mean, you've written a whole book on the frustrations of trying to bring these, you know, show these signals to people who can make a difference and, and do things. But why... Why has it taken so long to make any headway on this issue? So we could say 50 years we've, we've had where we could have been doing something about it. Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of answers to that. And a lot of things kind of, kind of came together and didn't. And um, as I said at the outset, when I first started measuring atmospheric carbon dioxide, there was no temperature signal. 
you couldn't see it. And um, one of the reasons was that it was perversely, I guess, irony, it was suppressed by the aerosols that uh, Hunter alluded to. So a cooling effect, and in fact, it has a name, it's called global dimming. And so when Clean Air Acts came in, I mean, the governments realised that tens of thousands of people were dying in cities because of air pollution. When that came in, it took away that aerosol layer, largely, allowing, like a coiled spring, the greenhouse gases to do their worst. And so then there was a temperature signal. And so, yeah, things really got going, but there were a huge number of sceptics around and vested interests. And I, I think one of the things now in the 21st century is, first of all, there's, there's what I'd, I'd refer to as brilliant journalism. There's been a rise uh, of exceptional investigative journalists who can see straight through a climate denier. They won't, they won't have a bar of it. So that's the, that's the first thing. But the other thing is, climate ch change now, it's all around us. The effects are obvious. You just have to look out the window in many places. Look, if you live in Alaska, you don't find climate deniers in Alaska. Um, here in New Zealand, the coastlines, um, I've been asked to speak at Plymouthon, which is a coastal settlement not far north of Wellington. It's been devastated by uh, rising sea levels. So this is obvious all along our coasts. Heat waves in other countries, um, fires, devastating fires. Uh, in Australia, 2019-2020, an estimated billion animals died because of those fires. So, to answer your question, a lot of factors, but it's obvious that we are really up against it. Yeah, I don't have a lot to add. I mean, there's, there was plausible deniability early on because of that aerosol uh, temperature suppressing effect. Uh, so people could say, sure, yeah, it's, the CO2 is rising, but we're not seeing a temperature rise in, in tandem. Uh, and that became uh, impossible to uh, uphold later in the 20th century. And that was when you started seeing these paid PR campaigns uh, bankrolled by fossil fuel companies actually actively denying the science when these same companies have known for decades prior that uh, the, the greenhouse effect was real, that climate change was happening and that they were causing it. Uh, so, yeah, vested interests, there was a profit to be made, uh, people were afraid of change. You can point to all sorts of um, uh, aspects of uh, human behaviour that, that has led to it take, us dragging our feet on this, the, taking so long. Um, but at the bottom line, yeah, it's no longer deniable. We need to, uh, the, yeah, the impetus is there. Um, we just need to take action. I do think that uh, momentum is starting to build, that things are moving in the right direction. Uh, if you compare where we are now in terms of having uh, regulations and legislation that backs up taking action on climate change uh, compared to a couple of, well, let's take 1990, the year I was born, uh, where the scientific understanding was there, uh, but there wasn't yet any uh, regulations in place. Uh, there's also, we've got, um, the cost of renewables has been the success story of the last decade, if you ask me. Uh, solar and um, wind being now cost competitive with fossil fuels and in many instances cheaper. Uh, 
That is all very promising to me. I think uh, it shows that we've got a feasible pathway out of this uh, and we just need to keep the pressure on and not feel that we've got the problem solved. Uh, ultimately, we won't have the problem solved until carbon dioxide concentrations start coming down. It's going to continue getting worse, so don't get complacent would be my uh, take on that. Yes, I'm doing a lot of public outreach um, at the moment around the Wellington area. Um, and the groups I talk to, and they range from organisations like the University of the Third Age, Probus Clubs, Regional Councils, so on, invariably everyone in the audience will, will know that there's an issue. That that climate change is real and it's happening and it's going to impact their lives and certainly the lives of their children. Where they get stuck is, what can I do personally about this? And that's something, they, that, to me, they find it hard to decouple what they've grown up with. They're, they're, um, you know, it's, it's very comfortable living with carbon. You flick a switch and gas heats your home. You have a big SUV out the front that is, is powered by diesel or, or petrol. I think they find it hard to decouple the fact that actually their actions are contributing to the problem. And if they really want to do something, they have to change their behaviour. And so um, one of the things to me, uh, I'm 75, uh, my wife and I, we, we ride electric bikes everywhere. You can use them for shopping and all sorts of things. We're riding these things practically every day. Um, we live in Petoni, which is a suburb of Lower Hutt. Um, doing an errand in Lower Hutt, you don't think twice, you just hop on the bike. You're there in 15 minutes. The audiences that I speak to, invariably, they're often younger than me, and yet riding a bike to go shopping or to do an errand two or three k away, nah mate, take the car. And so it's what we, both Hunter and I have talked about, behaviour. How do you get through to people that, well actually it's a wonderful idea to ride an electric bike for all sorts of reasons, not the least of it is health reasons, mm. rather than hop into your big SUV. So that, that change, that that, that has to come. We all have to change. Climate change means we have to change. That's the bottom line. Oh, um, it's all right. I'm going to push back on that a little bit. Uh, and I agree that uh, behaviour change needs to be a big part of the solution. And I, I'm not claiming you're saying it's the only part. Uh, but I think if you're trying to rely on behaviour change as the, the primary part of your uh, mitigation plan, we're just not going to get there because there's... So much, uh, so the forces working against you are so great of um, auto, uh, automobile manufacturers and the fossil fuel industry. It's um, there's a couple of examples I think that um, kind of bolster that point from my perspective. So one is uh, with when COVID nineteen hit and we had lockdowns worldwide, a uh, lot of industry ground to a halt. People weren't commuting into work. Uh, you could view that as a huge behaviour change that people completely changed their lifestyles to. Uh, be a lot more local. Uh, global emissions dropped somewhere in the order of six to seven percent uh, because of that. So that shows you that behaviour change will help, but it's just not going to be able to get us there the whole way. Uh, another 
uh, point I'd like to make is that uh, the idea of a personal carbon footprint was really popularised by BP um, in, in uh, kind of early 2000s, early 2010s, uh, where they wanted to shift uh, the onus of change from uh, industry and companies onto the individual um, because that worked in their favour. It could allow them to delay more, could take kind of the pressure off them to change as an industry. Uh, so I would encourage people to, uh, yes, look at ways that they can reduce their own carbon footprint and, and try to make uh, their own lifestyle less impactful, uh, but also see that uh, they're part of a bigger picture and uh, they can affect more change by... Uh, supporting companies that have uh, lower carbon footprints and uh, voting for political parties that have strong stances on um, on taking action on climate change. So just one quick question. You say that there was a 6-7% decrease. So what do we need to get? I mean, there's a range of scenarios, I guess, but then as mm. a minimum, what, what kind of decrease would we want to see in carbon dioxide? If we wanted to keep global temperatures uh, rising no more than one and a half degrees, I think we need on uh, about that level of decrease per annum, so 6 it to 7%. Through the 2020s. Exactly. Right. Um, so, and then net carbon zero by 2050. It needs to be taken yeah. into account, I agree. Well, I think um, when, when you look at the carbon emissions, essentially what we're doing is we're damaging the atmosphere. And uh, for most of the time, there's been no cost to that. You know, you, you just jump in your SUV and you don't really pay for the damage that you're doing to the atmosphere. And you think, what is the cost of damaging the atmosphere? And environmentalists would say, yeah, well, what's the cost of a billion animals killed in Australia? What are the cost of heat waves, disastrous heat waves? Mm. So we have never, ever really costed in, factored in, what we're doing to the planet. Um, but I'd actually like to go back to personal behaviour because I think um, during the first lockdown, 2020, New Zealand in particular was very, very successful in um, combating COVID-19 when there were no vaccines available by its team of five million approach. And we all bought into that, and of course that had the result of dropping emissions by an estimated 7%. And it seems to me that if we're going to combat climate change, we're talking about a team of 8 billion approach. Everyone has to be involved. So I think, while I agree with Hunter, I think really individuals have to be involved because it's individuals, after all, that vote governments in. So yes, governments are very important, but my, what I've seen is the democratic governments that we have, there's short-termism involved. In New Zealand, they're only in there for three years. It's very, very difficult for someone who's relying on uh, a job as an MP to think outside of those three years. And that's the issue with climate change, and in fact many things, education, health. These are long-term problems. And so really, to me, the most important organisations that we have are actually our local bodies, the Greater Wellington Regional Council, and so on. These are the people, the organisations, that are going to be in the front line for solving climate change issues and adaptation. 
When it comes to your team of 8 billion, though, I mean, how many of those 8 billion actually live in a de democratic country where they can vote a government out? It's and around half, I think, isn't it? Yeah. And, and when, when we look at, you know, like it actually suits some countries, doesn't it, for the tundra to be melting because it frees up the gas reserves, <laughs> it yeah. makes it difficult. A team of 5 million seems more manageable, so they I think there, yeah, the, the, it's a it's certainly a minority of countries that will come off better off uh, under climate change. Uh, Russia could be one uh, in that camp, um, but it's not it's no guarantee uh, of of safety. I mean, the uh, yes, they might have more land that's suitable. Uh, temperature-wise for growing crops, but that doesn't mean that the soil is ready for that or, uh, you know, the instance of wildfires in Siberia can be increasing. So uh, it's not... Uh, I don't think we should fear too much that uh, people will be actively trying to maintain uh, global temperature rises. That's my hopeful take on it, at least. OK, so... Um Imagine that both of you have just been appointed to a position where you can make this happen, um, perhaps globally or just in New Zealand. What would you do first to improve things? I'm going to cheat the question a little bit and, and not pick a single thing. Uh, I think we need to uh, be acting on both adaptation and mitigation concurrently. Uh, so there's a certain amount of climate change that's guaranteed uh, and even if we cut emissions to zero tomorrow the sea would continue to rise for a, for a time uh, so I would make sure that uh, every local organisation every uh, major company had an adaptation plan that was uh, designed for the types of risks that are going to be uh, the hazards that are going to be uh, worsening for them uh, so making sure we're ready for the changes that are going to be coming and on the mitigation side, uh, I think the problem is not solved until the fossil fuel industry uh, is um, brought to, into a net zero position. So you could uh, approach that by uh, banning future exploration. Uh, and uh, though, as Dave said, we're, even if we uh, burn all the fossil fuels that have currently been um, uh, proven and uh, currently being extracted, that still takes us too far. So another, uh, if I had to pick a single policy to implement, there's an interesting one which is being proposed by uh, my PhD supervisor Dave Frame and a couple of his colleagues, uh, which was saying that we implement a requirement on fossil fuel companies to uh, permanently sequester uh, a fraction of the carbon that they emit as uh, part of their extraction and that fraction increases over time so that they re have to uh, reach a net zero position uh, by say 2050. So you turn up the ratchet on the fossil fuel companies and the advantage of that approach is that it leverages the huge amounts of capital resources engineering expertise that those companies have and you turn it into uh, a carbon sequestration industry. So you turn those fossil fuel companies into allies essentially. So how do they sequester it? Sequestering uh, carbon is a uh, real technical challenge. Uh, if, if you propose putting it all in trees, it's uh, subject to a lot of uh, 
risks around, say, wildfires burning it down, the trees themselves having a, uh, a heating impact through the albedo change on the, uh, on the land. Mm. Uh, for permanent sequestration, you really need to uh, mineralise the carbon dioxide and get it into underground deposits. That's, um, there'll be other alternatives out there, but that's really the only technically proven one, and it's not <coughs> clear that we can do that at scale. Uh, so, yes, this, this is a nice idea of uh, getting fossil fuel companies to net zero through sequestration, but uh, it's an unproven. Um, uh, it's unproven from a technological point uh, standpoint that we could actually scale it up to the scale required. There are some interesting, again, non non linearities in the atmospheric response to greenhouse gases, where uh, taking carbon dioxide back out of the atmosphere is not necessarily the same thing as avoiding putting it out there in the first place. Okay. Um, so uh, it is actually easier, cheaper, more effective to not emit in the first place than it is to try to suck it back out. Okay. So uh, from a physical point of view, yes, it would be much better if we could reduce the amount getting emitted each year. Uh, it's just, a, again, it comes back to a question of economics feasibility. Okay, thanks. Yeah, yeah I think for me... You know, the, the single greatest thing, so I talked before about there really is no, we haven't paid the cost of damaging the atmosphere. We need to pay that. So I think there has to be a price put on everything that emits damaging greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And that price should keep on increasing. What do you do with the money? that would start raising huge amounts of revenue, I think you start putting it into the kind of projects that uh, your supervisor, Dave Frame, was talking about. Eventually, you've got a situation where it feels unfair because you've got uh, countries like India where they really don't have alternatives to burning coal. Countries that have created this problem need to be paying for that. So, I don't know how you do this, but in a perfect world, you really would have a United Nations which is responsible for the Earth. All nations have to work together in an organisation that realises, hey, we are facing this problem together and find these solutions that make it equitable for all nations on Earth but avoid the incredible damage to the atmosphere. And as a scientist, to me, if you stick a price on carbon and it would be very, very high because, as Hunter's pointed out, the ultimate solution is turning the carbon dioxide back into rocks. Mm. The cost of doing that is colossal, let alone where would you put the rocks. You can do a simple calculation, I've done this, and one year's worth of emissions, 40 billion tonnes equivalent CO2, you would need a hole 80 cubic kilometres just for one year, you know. Um, this, is, this is an unbelievable problem that we have created. But to me, paying the true costs of that damage to the atmosphere are really the way to go. I think we've seen that implemented successfully for other pollutants. Um, so, yeah, it's a proven technique. It needs to be taken yeah. into account, and I agree. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to Te Koki School of Music alumni Stefan Patton and Kenyon Shanky for the use of their music. 
from Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, Haere rā.